Welcome to Genuine Life Recovery. We're here to help you and your loved ones overcome addictions and other addiction-related mental health challenges. In this show, we dive into the physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual aspects of addiction, mental health, recovery, family dynamics, codependency, and more. You can listen on your favorite app or at jodystevens.org. Genuine Life Recovery is made possible by great friends like Joshua's Heart in memory of Joshua Brent Moore, bringing hope, love, and awareness to those afflicted by addiction online at joshsheart.org and Jody Stevens Productions for commercial voiceover, narration, production, MC, and public speaking online at jodystevens.org. Welcome back, friends. I am joined by Ed Corey. Ed, my understanding is you have been in and worked in the recovery world since 1978. That's awesome. Yes, it's been a fun journey. And you are in, I love how podcasting brings us together. You said you were in North Carolina, right? Yes. What's the coolest thing to do there? Um, it depends what you like. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, if you like mountains and hiking and things like that, it's great um, in this area. If you like, you know, music and concerts and art um, down in Charlotte, you've got a lot of that. Our area is the foothills, so it's a little semi-rural, uh, which I really appreciate. I like. Your resume was very impressive. So tell me about just the areas in the field of addictions that you've worked in throughout the years. It sounds like you've worked in addiction recovery for, gosh, 30, 40 years. I have. Mm -hmm. um, I started volunteering right. in support groups which that were connected with my church. And I really, I mean, I loved it. it mm -hmm. I felt right at home. In 1986, I went to get trained to do full-time addiction work. So since then, I've worked in residential treatment. I've worked in halfway houses, transitional housing for homeless people, worked in a, an alternative sentencing program for people in, uh, with substance abuse-related offenses. That is a lot of stuff. What could you say about all, like if you were to say one or two things about, for people that have not worked in those settings, about what you learned, what you've seen, what the takeaway was, what, what the number one thing you'd want people to know, what would that be? I think one of the really hard things to learn is to really allow people to make their own choices, even though we really disagree with them and we can tend to <laughs> right. see where they're heading. Mm -hmm. The kind of the autonomy piece, like that we're taught in the therapeutic setting that, you know, we we allow people to be their own autonomous people and make their own decisions. Right. Even because that eventually helps them. Yeah. And but it's really hard to not get your yes. um, sense of personal worth and value wrapped up with um, what kind of outcomes people are having, mm -hmm. um, because if. I do that, I become very codependent or very depressed. It's interesting because program design has a lot to do with outcomes. Mm -hmm. um, some more traditional means of treatment tend to have very poor outcomes. Yeah. Others that work more along the lines of sort of a therapeutic, a modified therapeutic community model. Mm -hmm. um, combined with really, really strong aftercare and community support tend to have better outcomes. The community piece is really key. 
and that's huge, which is definitely something I want to get into as we're talking about family and connecting and things like that. So you, in addition to this, you have taught all over in different countries, it looks like, and yes. written some books. Talk to me about that. Well, in 2003, my wife and I felt like, because she'd been doing work in the field of, um, she was a therapist in private practice working with women coming from traumatic backgrounds who Mm. also had addictions. So in about 2003, we really felt like um, we spent a lot of time praying and waiting and Mm -hmm. felt like our next direction was to start training people to do the work that we'd done Mm -hmm. because there is almost no training in many places around the world. So we began traveling and training, um, I think we've been to close to 30 nations and through the networks we work with, I've taught classes for somewhere around um, close to 70 nations. The books that I've been developing are the result of many years of teaching and trying to make recovery, especially in churches, more an integrated part of the church community. So there are three books that I've written The first book is called Becoming a Face of Grace, um, Navigating Lasting Relationships with God and Others. The second book picks up where the first one left off and says, well, how do we do grace-based support groups that build healthy community? And that's called Beyond Becoming, a field guide to sustainable transformational communities. The last book is called The Weight of Leadership how codependency and misplaced mercy undermine life and ministry. Oh my goodness. That like says so much right there. (laughs) Being from a very (laughs) codependent family with addiction going back generations, Mm -hmm. it's that kind of stuff is huge. The codependency angle that a lot of people don't believe in or want to look at is what I've been finding. Yes. And it's, if we're personally codependent, we're probably function that way as leaders. Right, And uh, we can do a lot of damage to our teams and the people Mm -hmm. we're trying to serve without ever recognizing what's going on. Well, and I'll have to have you back to do a whole thing on codependency because it's such a loaded thing. A lot of people think, oh, codependency is enabling. Well, I was never an enabler, but I did not know who I was. Like I kind of given away. And and so I had this kind of the whole external locus of control, what they call it, where (laughs) who I was, was defined by my performance. And that's codependent as well. But most people wouldn't recognize it as that because I think so many people don't know what it is because it, it transcends everything or it's, it's, it shows up in so many ways and in so many issues and in so many um, family dynamics and in so many personality disorders, right? So it's hard to, it's hard to quantify what it is. I always talk about codependency as carrying weight for which we're not responsible. So we carry the weight for outcomes for other people, for their feelings, um, situations that are just simply not ours to carry. And it's fueled by what I call the four deadly P's. Those are pleasing, Mm -hmm. performing, Mm -hmm. trying to minimize pain or maximize pleasure. Those things really tend to lock 
people into carrying weight that they were never intended to carry. Mm. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting the way it can show up differently in different people. So for me, there were just power imbalances where I would give away my power, Mm -hmm. my platform, or I would make myself small so people could, Oh, I'm not really, you're really good at that. Not me. Mm -hmm. Things like that, where you wouldn't necessarily spot that as codependency. You would just say, wow, that's low self-esteem. So it's very, it's very interesting. And then, you know, looking at, so how does all this play into addiction and recovery? Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of moving parts, but I like what you said because you really spelled out the way in which, you know, that, that leaves a lot of room <laughs> for navigating the different ways it shows up, if that makes yes. sense. <laughs> no, it, it, it really does. It's, it's why I really like that broad definition. Part of the reason my first book is called Becoming a Face of Grace is when I started to research the origins of that word. Um, it's a very relational term that goes back to probably 3, 350 B.C., it doesn't mean what people tend to think it is like, well, it's unmerited favor. It's actually means that you're my favorite or you're special so Mm -hmm. much that I want to have a relationship with you. The reason I get codependent is I don't really understand that I'm God's favorite. Mm -hmm. And so are you, but you really can't get any higher than that. (laughs) So, So I end up spending all this time trying to please perform, minimize pain, maximize pleasure because I really don't know who I am. I don't have a strong sense of how God sees me. And so I end up carrying weight for other people. I kind of de-self. I can be controlling. I can be manipulative. I could be enabling. I could be passive. I could be a doormat. I mean, there's so many behaviors in and all between that, but I think it really flows from an unstable sense of personal identity. Yeah, no, and and that's so true. And of course, then we get into the family dynamics and Mm -hmm. attachment theory, and then you can roll it even deeper and then look at sin and the fall. And it's, you know, when they talk about peeling back, you know, the layers of the of the onion, it, Mm -hmm. it really comes back to that model of just the fallen world. Mm -hmm. And, And that's not to say that addiction is a moral failure. I don't believe that. Mm -hmm. But when you look at the fall and you look at sin, you could look at how it it hits every single area of our life, even our genetics, even our biology, mm-hmm. even, yeah. you know what I mean? Like yes. it's, it's even before as we're being created in the womb, we can mm-hmm. see its impact, yeah. right? And so it's, it's a fa- like, you know, the Bible tells us all creation is groaning. So mm-hmm. everything's impacted, even yeah. the atoms, right? Yes. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of identity really is formed in one way or another in the close attachments we have early in life. Parents with more secure attachment styles tend to have children that have better, more stable identities. Yeah. Uh, Not perfect. Um, I tell people perfect parents are like flying horses and unicorns. (laughs) Okay. They don't exist. Exactly. So all of our attachments excuse me, are going to be malformed to one degree or another. It's a matter of degree. But I think healthy attachment 
tends to um, make people more resilient, less resistant to addictions, and to develop much stronger attachment styles. Since we're on the subject, and I want to I want to hear about your story as well, but describe what attachment theory is and how it plays into addiction for those that don't know. Attachment theory is one of those things that's been researched pretty, I mean, it's huge, the amount yeah. of research done into it. And uh, attachment style is something that begins forming from um, the time we're born and probably pre-birth. Uh, it's measurable by the time we're about two and a half years old. Mm-hmm. And attachment theory, said, it's really talking about how do we connect with um, people that are important to us in the world around us. Right, exactly. And there are four attachment styles. One is secure, which is the one everyone wants. Mm-hmm. Um, it's where we are able to switch back and forth between high energy activated states and quieting states with um, primary caregivers. Um, it means we do dopamine and serotonin regulation well. You know, babies, once babies um, are able, once their eyesight comes online, they will spend up to eight hours a day just doing joy smiles with mom, um, mm. alternating between periods of high arousal intensity, smiling, and then low intensity. Okay, now we quiet and rest. And in the process, the baby's brain is becoming organized, learning to re- um, regulate important neurotransmitters. But more importantly, is developing the way that it will tend to connect with other people throughout our lifetime. Mm-hmm. There are three n- non-secure attachment styles. Now, they have clinical names, but I tend to think in alliteration, so I use yeah. Ds. The first is dismissive, mm-hmm. which is where our nervous system learns to undervalue the importance of relationships and emotions. That we would be my do- dad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, mine too. <laughs> we just tend to do life and relationships at a distance. Yeah. The other, the next is distracted, which is the exact opposite, which is where we overvalue mm-hmm. um, the importance of emotions and relationships. Um, there's a lot of interesting dynamics that help set that up, but basically, our nervous system is always on high alert for the opportunity to connect or share um, emotions with other people. The last one, and the most painful one and the one that is most correlated to the development of, of addiction is called disorganized. Yeah. And that was the one that, interestingly enough, I related to the most when I studied this, mm-hmm. but I didn't experience severe abuse. There was just mm-hmm. emotional stuff. So it was interesting because when you read about a disorganized attachment style, and what that basically means is, I love you, I hate you, I, I don't know mm-hmm. what you're going to do. Um, right. You know, as a caregiver, um, we tend to think of it as as children of massive trauma and high abuse, which is Mm -hmm. true. But I think that's not always the case. I think we can develop that with from just inconsistency. Am am I not right, or am I right? Yeah, there. My friend Jim Wilder is part of an organization called Life Model Works. They talk about two types of trauma, type A and type B. Mm -hmm. Type B is the presence of bad things we don't need. Type A is the absence of the good, necessary things that we do need to form healthy attachments. Mm. So if you think about 
you know, type A, if you think about abandonment, neglect, malnutrition, being emotionally, relationally unavailable, sometimes that can lead to dismissive attachment, but it can also really severe trauma ache, I think, can lead to disorganized attachment. So it's not always, hey, a bunch of really bad things happened. And there's usually a combination of A and B. And the thing of it is, is a lot of times these dysfunctional attachments are forming as our brains are developing, which is where we get the dopamine and serotonin imbalances. And I think a lot of people don't realize that. So we get older and it's like, oh, you have a personality disorder. Oh, you're schizophrenic. Oh, you're, you know, Mm -hmm. you're this or that. And we get maybe this diagnosis. And a lot of times we see bipolar, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and things like that. And really it's trying to sort of regulate this fear because if there was trauma or abuse or something that caused a disruptive attachment style right i Uh think then what happens is not only is our 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 brains like on high alert Mm -hmm. our brains form in a way that puts us on high alert but we also kind of learn that the world's not particularly safe, which isn't necessarily true. Like it is and it isn't, but you understand what I'm saying, right? So this impacts us throughout our whole lives, but help is available. But back to the the point of, you know, how this, this can impact us. I think, I think the two questions were the neurological piece of it (laughs) and then how it impacts us, you know, later in life. We end up through trauma A or trauma B we are still, our brain is still at a level way below consciousness looking for an external attachment to help it regulate neurotransmitters. The fact that we may not have had that doesn't mean the brain stops looking. Right. One of the real problems with trauma is the brain is looking for a reliable sense of means of dopamine regulation, which means we live in a normal level of pleasure. See, if I experience trauma A or B to significant degrees, life just does not feel like a good place to me, maybe a, an unsafe place. Yeah. But yeah. it's still looking for something that it can attach to, to center, to mm-hmm. do that regulation for it or help it learn it. And drugs, drugs, addictions of all different kinds, almost all of them trigger the release of dopamine. Yeah. Which means eventually, uh, I call them beeps, their behaviors, Mm -hmm. events, experiences, people, or substances that our attachment center in the brain latches onto instead of genuine, joyful relationships with God and other people. So beeps hijack the brain's attachment center. Mm -hmm. And when they do, because that's at such a deep level that's subconscious, it tends to direct and steer the whole course of the rest of the brain. Um, And trauma is what sets us up for that. Right. And then I think what happens is it becomes almost like a replacement. It's it's very, uh-huh. you could look at it in a spiritual sense of, of a mimicry, mm-hmm. of a demonic mimicry of, you know, if I do drugs and I didn't get the love and support that I needed, it can feel like that. It can mm-hmm. mimic it. You know, yeah. a big shot of heroin could feel like a big hug. It is, is what is what the drug then feels like. Yeah. It's like all yeah. these things that I was looking for, they have now arrived. Mm-hmm. And then it turns around and it kills us if we let yeah. it, you know. 
And the really sad part is the stronger our attachment center latches on to beeps, the more likely it is to um, turn away from genuine, joyful, loving, caring relationships with God and others. So it almost, um, yeah, it, 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 it's been hijacked. So healthy mm-hmm. stuff has less appeal to it because it's getting its needs met through its primary attachment to whatever we're addicted to. And it's oftentimes, really... yeah, if you're from an addicted family, the you didn't really learn to – we tend to be a little impulsive. Yeah. And so then you can throw that in the mix where it's like, yeah. I don't like to wait. You, you become impulsive. And obviously we know that genuine relationships take time. They take effort. They're difficult. They're messy. And so a lot of times – especially if you have an attachment disorder Mm -hmm. or basically what we mean by that is you just didn't get your needs met. There's a void. Mm -hmm. And so we grow up there. There's, there's a, there's a void. And then there's some probably issues with impulsivity because maybe we didn't learn to wait, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. I know I struggle with that. I just want everything now. (laughs) This is what I want. What just doesn't work that way. And so it's just so much easier to find a quick fix. And this is. is why, getting help is so important because you you can't do this on your own. Yeah. And our culture is primed and geared and promotes the quickest, best fix possible. Right. Yeah. Um, The idea of delayed gratification or dare I say suffering well is so antithetical to our culture. (laughs) Even if you don't have an addiction issue or even if you have a secure attachment, it's tempting. (laughs) Well, and what I love about all this, though, you know, you could look at all this and say, oh, you know, I have a disorganized attachment. You know, life is over, that kind of a thing. Or, you know, I have this this avoidant style or I have, mm-hmm. you know, this this chemical imbalance. Well, the brain is one of the best organs at fixing itself, regenerating itself. And and personalities can be changed. You know, one of the sad things we see in addicted families, and I know sometimes this is in my families, is along with the denial comes things like, that's just the way it is. That's just the way your mom is. That's just the way, you know, I lost my brother to addiction. Mm -hmm. Um, He died and, and, you know, grandpa's uncles and, Mm -hmm. you know, so there, but there was a lot of like, I got sober and oh, that's just the way you are. Well, yeah. No, it was not just the way I was. Exactly. It was a lot of work. But the, yep. but I guess what I'm trying to say is that's not true. We're not just the way we are. <laughs> there are right. so many tools that we can change. We can develop, right? Yep. Right? I mean, Ed, we yes. can develop a secure attachment. There are so many tools and so much hope. And mm-hmm. most people have no idea that it's out there. But it is. Yeah. When, when researchers were doing all their studies on attachment and attachment theory, the model predicted that once you formed an attachment style by two and a half, it would remain that way throughout your lifetime. Mm-hmm. But they began to, in long-term studies, they started to see, now, wait a minute, something changed because some people were becoming more securely attached. Right. They said, how did this happen? So they went back and studied it. And what they, dis- what they concluded is that if you are a person with a more non-secure attachment style, if you are in a long-term relationship or form an attachment with someone long, long-term long who has a more secure attachment style than you do, 
your attachment style will tend to start changing. Mm-hmm. But it's over time. It's not a quick fix. Right, right. But other people are absolutely critical for that to happen. It's almost like my brain, well, it's not, it is exactly like my brain needs an external reference point mm-hmm. that in effect becomes um, a new primary person that's going to help me learn to regulate, to help me learn to do life. It's absolutely critical. But that changes. Um, if people are willing to do the work in those relationships, they will find attachment styles do change. Absolutely. And then they can even change with education as we look into the stuff. We study some of this stuff. We learn this stuff. And we practice different modes of relating, right? The definition yes. of insanity for many of us that struggle with addiction, the, we, we tend to have done relationships in the same way most of our life and it's like you start changing that and then you start first of all not believing all the lies the you Mm -hmm. know the idea that something bad's always going to happen you know Mm -hmm. you you replace it with you know the whole cognitive behavior replacing um some of our negative thought patterns with more positive Mm -hmm. things not always believing the worst case scenario and then going out and pushing through this stuff and trying it out and you know that that can be huge is just the the, mm-hmm. the learning piece of understanding this is what it is right now mm-hmm. i can change it through some different cognitive mm-hmm. some behavioral things and and then start creating different outcomes and then through those different outcomes slowly your brain can actually then begin to change as well, right? I mean, I guess they call that psychotherapy, right? Uh-huh. Where eventually all these systems can can begin to regulate themselves. Yeah, it's... If that makes sense. <laughs> I'm not sure how much you really want me to get into um, the neuroscience of all this, but it's if cognitive behavioral therapy is really helpful for the side of the brain that does logic, reasoning, and verbal processing. Uh The side of the brain where attachments tend to form is nonverbal. It doesn't think in words or pictures. Mm. So cognitive, and that's really where the attachment center lies, is on the nonverbal hemisphere. Uh Cognitive behavioral therapy has limits it's great for processing through what do I believe about me? What do I understand about me? How can I reframe this? Anything associated with words and language in the left hemisphere, CBT is really good for. But the right hemisphere is primarily nonverbal. It doesn't do words and languages. It thinks in images and pictures. So that part of the brain will respond to it really only responds to interpersonal relationships. And it's also where identity center tends to live. That side of the brain runs faster than the left hemisphere. Flow of information starts in the bottom of the right hemisphere, gets to the front and kicks over into the left. So the left hemisphere can process, well, what just happened to me? That's where cognitive behavioral therapy can be really helpful. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. the ad- adjusting some of that pre-subconscious processing of attachment the brain does can only be done face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball, with one or more people. 
And so it sounds tra- kind of more like you're talking about a lot of the automatic responses, like automatic responses push mm-hmm. our emotions up really high to yes. where we're kind of fight or flight. And then we mm-hmm. move back into the reason state as mm-hmm. the as the tank of emotions, as one guy put it, kind of slows down. So that's probably mm-hmm. like what you're saying is like when someone's in stress mode. Like I used to, like, I would always try to reason with a screaming person. doesn't yeah. work. <laughs> Does you just have work. to like hear them. Uh-huh. Yes, <laughs> and, and, then, and then once they get back into the reason mode, which sounds mm-hmm. like the side of the brain where you're talking about with mm-hmm. the cognitive, with the behavioral stuff, then we're moving back into yeah. that mode, you know? Yes. Mm. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because if attachments are strong and secure, the amygdala, which does fight, flight, freeze, mm-hmm. tends to have an, and it's subconscious, so it doesn't really have conscious opinions, but right. it tends to it tends to sort the world into, is this good, bad, or scary? Right. If attachments are really strong early in life, the amygdala is becoming trained to say, you know, life is a pretty good place. I don't have to run overtime for this. When attachments are not secure, that fight, flight, freeze kicks up big time. And it's below my level of conscious control at that point. And it's it's a world that we're always kind of living in. And that's why getting, I think, help is so important because we can we can change that through working yes. through it. But like I started reading The Body Keeps Score, which is just oh, like a book on. Yeah, really, really uh, yeah, it was really I mean, I just started reading it, but I get it because you know, when, when there's been attachment issues, I think, and trauma, and then we're moving into addiction and stuff, there isn't a place for authenticity, joy, freedom, love. Yep. Like everything just stops. Like they did the thing yes. where they showed the ink blots to the to the um, the Vietnam veterans that had PTSD, and in the ink blot they saw, you know, their friends' head exploding, and yeah. you know what I mean. Like they were yeah. stuck, and it was years later, yeah. and that's that's all they saw in the world. Yeah. And so it's it's in working through that stuff where we can find freedom. But I think we, I don't, and I don't know if we have to necessarily go back and dig up ghosts, but we have no. to kind of do things to work through uh, the trauma so that we can get that joy and that freedom back yeah. or develop it, right? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Ed Corey, for joining us. Part one, we're going to be back with part two, and Ed is going to share his story. We're going to talk about how addiction impacts the entire family family, family roles and coping strategies in the addicted family system, and the importance of family treatment. You can find out more about Ed, his books, and his program, and more on his website at equippinghearts.com. Thank you so much, friends, for listening to Genuine Life Recovery, playing on your favorite app or on my website at jodystevens.org. It's J-O-D-I-E-S-T-E-V-E-N-S, jodystevens.org. There you can check out my podcast, blog, recovery coaching info, speaking, and more. Check it out.